Yeah, there, there's so many opportunities for us to get uh, plugged in and involved in what we're doing here. We often get asked as a church, hey, what is your church doing about this? And our question's always gonna be, well, what can you do about this? You see, our plan to reach Fayetteville in the world is always going to be, look, look around you, our people, it's you. And so we wanna invite you to be a part of what we're doing. We wanna reach Fayetteville, and our plan is you. How can we get behind you and help you do that? Well, hey, a couple weeks ago, uh, if you were here, you saw Anne, and Anne shared um, about her, her, her grandmother passing away before we sang a song, and Anne was supposed to be leading this morning, and I got a text yesterday about her husband who had a seizure. And um, her husband, Jordan, and Anne have been here for a long time. And over the last two years, Jordan's been having some seizures, and, and they don't know why. Um, he's on medication, and they, they still can't figure out what is going on. And so um, what I told them is this morning that we would pray for them as a body. And so if you would, would you, would you bow your head and just for the next moment, would you offer up a prayer for comfort for their family and, and for answers as well? I want you to take a moment to pray for anybody else in your life that you know has, a, has health conditions going on. And um, just so thankful for our, our medical field. You, you all do an amazing job. But as a body, can we lift up the other hurting people that you know by name for a moment? Pray for them. Pray for comfort, for healing. Oh, Father, you are the healer, the healer of the broken, the broken soul, the broken heart, the broken world. Lord, you are the redeemer. Father, we, we sing to you this morning as, as the king, the only king who would lower himself to lift up his people. Lord, would you be our healer today of our souls? As we sing these songs, God, would you heal our hearts, our minds? God, we need you. It's only by your power that that can happen. And so we turn to you this morning and ask that you would do just that. As we begin our time this morning, would you stand with me? Let's, let's read this together from Psalm 33. It says, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the 10 string lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. Let's read this together. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. So this morning, we sing to our King. Let's sing this together. God of creation, there at the start, for the beginning of time with no point of rest. 
spoke to the dark, fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made. Every burning star, a signal of fire.
obeys you, Lord, if creation praises you, then we offer our lives to do the same, to lay it down at your feet, the king, and offer all that we are, all that we have, to be given to your kingdom. Father, we need you. You're the one who changes hearts. You're the one who heals. So, Father, we look to you and ask you would teach us from your word this morning that we would leave here different, that our city would, city would be different because of the people in this room. God, we give this morning to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Take a seat. Have y'all ever given much thought 
to the people in your family who came before you? Have you ever thought much about those who brought you where you are, made you who you are? Now I know some of y'all have never even really thought about the fact that your grandparents had grandparents. But there's others in here. You've done the work. You're interested in what's come before you. You've made genealogy your hobby. Now, when it comes to genealogy as a hobby, I view it kind of like I view deer hunting. I wanna let someone else do that. I'll just enjoy the results. So I do think it's interesting. I don't really wanna go to the library and go through birth records and look at old pictures, but I think it's interesting when other people do. And I'm always amazed at some of the things they find out. So I wanna do a little poll this morning. I just wanna see where we are in here. I just wanna just kind of get the feel. How many of y'all, by show of hands, know something about your family from, let's say, 100 years ago, the turn of the 20th century? How many of y'all know a little bit about your family? Yeah, that's about what I was expecting. All right, now, what if we go back another 100 years? How many of y'all know something about your family before the Civil War? Yeah, a few, a few. Anybody go all the way back to, like, the Revolution, the founding of our country? Yeah, man, there's several. That is amazing to me. See, my family was primarily sharecroppers, and so we don't have a lot of birth certificates and records. I don't know much about my lineage going on back, and so I'm always amazed when people do. Well, this morning, we're gonna finish up our four-week study of the book of Ruth, and it's not going to end the way we thought it might. It's actually gonna end with a genealogy, and what we're gonna see this morning as we process these final few verses in this little four-chapter book, I hope are gonna help us read the book of Ruth in a whole new light. I'm hoping that together, as we look at how it ends, we're gonna realize this book is way more significant than maybe how we even imagined. So if you've got your Bible, maybe your digital device, go ahead and turn with me. We're gonna be in Ruth chapter four. We're gonna begin in verse 13. Well, my name's Michael. I get the privilege of serving on the community team here and I gotta tell you, I have really enjoyed this study of the book of Ruth. I've enjoyed processing it in here with y'all and with those of you joining us online. But even more, I've enjoyed the study in my community group and in my Thursday morning men's group as we've really just peeled back the layers of this story and seen what God has in here for us. And I've had so many people tell me, man, there's a lot more in Ruth than I ever realized. And so for those of you maybe who are jumping in with us here at the end or, or just to jog our memories early in the morning, a little recap. Uh, if we go back to Ruth chapter one, Clark taught that for us a few weeks ago. We saw a man named Elimelech and he lived during the time of the judges and you'll remember the judges. It was a dark period in Israel's history. They had no centralized government. Sin was rampant, idolatry. And into that setting, there was a famine. And Elimelech took his family and left their hometown of Bethlehem and moved to Moab, Moab, a traditional enemy of Israel. And while they were there, his sons married Moabite women, and over the course of a decade, all the men in the family died. And so as we moved into chapters two and three, we saw Naomi, Elimelech's widow, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabite. And they moved back to Bethlehem, and they arrived there during a time of harvest, and so Ruth went to work in the barley fields. We've had a, a shaft of grain on our slides for the last month to remind us this is all happening during the grain harvest. 
And as she was working as a gleaner, working behind the harvesters, picking up broken pieces, she came to know a man named Boaz. Boaz, as it turned out, was a close relative of her late father-in-law, Elimelech. And we saw as their relationship grew, Ruth eventually just offered herself for a marriage proposal. And Boaz took her up on it. And so last week, Garland walked us through the first part of chapter four, where Boaz went to the leaders of the city and declared his intention to marry Ruth and to redeem her property. Garland walked us through this idea of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, one who could redeem someone whose land, whose lineage had been lost. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I compared the book of Ruth to a streaming series. Every chapter seems to end with this little cliffhanger that makes us wanna watch the next episode. Well, last week, we got to the end of the story, didn't we? Boaz declared to the city and the elders his intention to marry Ruth. The relationship we've been pulling for, hoping it's all gonna work out, has come together. And the credits roll. End of the story. Or is it? Because like any good Marvel movie, there's a post-credit sequence, right? If you've ever seen a Marvel movie, when it starts to stay starring so-and-so, you don't leave, you wait, because there's gonna be something else. And so, in our streaming series, Boaz declares his intention to marry Ruth. Everyone applauds, we all feel good, the credits roll, but then it comes back and it opens again on this familiar home. We recognize it, it's the home of Naomi and Ruth. And at the bottom of the screen, it says, one year later, and as the camera pans in on Naomi, she turns toward the camera and she has in her lap a baby. Look at verse 13 with me. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became for him his nurse. Naomi has a grandson Naomi, who was so broken and bitter when she came back to Jerusalem, I mean to Bethlehem, that she said, call me Mara, which means bitterness. And what we notice in this little section here, this little post-credits scene, is the focus is actually not on Ruth. Ruth is the baby's mom. Now the focus is actually on Naomi. Let's roll back up and look at verse 14. I skipped over these two verses. Then the women, that's the women of Bethlehem, said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, Lord in all caps, it's Yahweh. Blessed be Yahweh, the covenant-keeping creator God of Israel, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons, has given him to you. Did you catch that? We've been thinking of Boaz. He's the Goel. He's the kinsman redeemer. But these women, they say to Naomi, you've got your redeemer in your lap. It's actually the baby. We're gonna find out in a minute. His name's Obed. Obed is the redeemer. How can this baby be Naomi's redeemer? Well, the answer is Elimelech, the man who died in the opening couple of verses this is his family line. See, when all the men in the family died and their land had gone to someone else, it looked as if their family, their legacy wouldn't continue. But this baby that Boaz has given to Ruth, 
He'll continue Naomi and Elimelech's line. She's gone from empty, no land, no family, to full as she holds this baby in her lap. And that's the end of the story. God's faithfulness in these people's lives has resulted in a redeemer, a baby, who's gonna pull this broken family back together. And so what we see is the theme of this whole book. Nobody is beneath God's notice. Nobody is so small, so insignificant that they escape the notice of our great creator God who spoke the universe into existence. It's incredible when you think about it. Look at the characters in the story. Naomi, broken, bitter, empty. She didn't fall off God's radar. She wasn't beneath his notice. He continued to care for her and restored her. Think about Ruth. If anybody would have been beyond God's notice, it would have been a Moabite widow. She's outside the covenant people of God. She's in an enemy nation. She's a widow, and yet she said, your God will be my God. I'm going to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so God has redeemed and restored her. She was never below his notice. Or Boaz, the landowner, happily going through his life, living generously, obeying the law, being a blessing to others. He was never beneath God's notice. The end. Or is it? No, does a Marvel movie end after the post-credits titles, the post-credit sequence? No, there's a post-post-credit sequence, right? Only the uninitiated at a Marvel movie get up and leave after the post-credits. So as the little credits start to roll, you know the weird ones? Like Gaffer and Best Boy and Location Manager? You stay through all of that. You stay until it says no animals were harmed by this green screen. Because there's gonna be one more piece, right? And in a Marvel movie, that very last little tag usually tells you how this movie fits into the larger Marvel Cinematic Universe. It usually has a connection to another storyline and you start to see how these stories are related. That's exactly what the author of Ruth does here. Verse 17, this baby, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What? David? That would have been the response of the original readers. This whole story has been about David's great-grandma? Y'all, this is a big reveal. This story of pain and joy famine and fullness, this unlikely love story where love blossomed on the barley fields. It's actually been the story of the family lineage of Jesus' greatest king, or of Israel's greatest king. I don't know how to make y'all internalize how big a reveal this was. This is Sixth Sense. This is Fight Club. This is Usual Suspects. If you've never seen any of those movies, they all have a big twist. I'm not gonna ruin them for you. Garland would ruin them for you. I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna tell you they have a big twist. Ruth is David's great-grandma. Now, let's remember who David is. David is Israel's greatest king. He was the shepherd boy who was a man after God's own heart. He was the young man who slew the giant Goliath when everyone else was afraid of him. He was the man who God would place on the throne of Israel. He would unite 
the 12 tribes that were kind of a loosely knit confederation into a nation. God blessed the nation through David. And what the author's gonna do is set that story in the greater picture, the bigger biblical narrative. And so he goes on to give us this genealogy. It begins, these are the generations of Perez. And what follows is a list of names. And to us, they're just names. I don't know what we as 21st century readers are supposed to do with them. Unless maybe you're expecting, there might be some good ideas. I'm gonna throw a minadab out there. I think it works for a boy or a girl. Just putting it out there, think about it. The original readers, and we as careful Bible students, we should see that first line, these are the generations, and it should make us say, wait, this is a connection to Genesis. And if we look carefully, we're gonna see how this little genealogy is gonna tie the Old Testament and Ruth all the way to the New Testament. So y'all, buckle up. Here we go. We're gonna do 2,000 years of salvation history in just a few minutes. We go back to Genesis. You remember the garden. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. God's plan is for them to be in communion with him, to do meaningful work as they care for the garden, to walk with him in the cool of the day. But of course, they do what every one of us would do. They rebel against God. They sin, and they bring sin and death in. And so, in the early chapters of Genesis, God starts a project to redeem for himself a people to do what they were designed to do, to represent him on the earth, to glorify him, and to be in communion and relationship with him. And he really sets that plan in motion in Genesis chapter 12. Now, when we think about Abraham, that phrase, the generations of Perez, that's this Hebrew word, toledot, and it means the generations, the descendants. And we see that over and over in Genesis. We've all had that experience of doing our read through the Bible in a year, and we get to the generations page, and we're like, oh man, there's all these names. But Abraham, the generations of Abraham, God made a promise to him. We find it in Genesis 12, three, we call it the Abrahamic promise or the Abrahamic covenant. God said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. Then he says this, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham, through your descendants, the whole world's gonna receive a blessing. The Abrahamic promise. Well, Abraham has a son. His name's Isaac. Isaac has a son. His name's Jacob. Jacob, his name will eventually be changed to Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons who are the 12 fathers of the tribes of Israel. And right before Jacob dies, he gives a prophetic blessing to each of his sons. Here's the one we're interested in. It's in Genesis 49. He has a son named Judah, and he says this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like kingship language. He's saying, Judah, you will have the staff of rulership. You will hold the scepter. From you, Judah, will come the royal line. The tribe of Judah will be the tribe of kings. Judah's first son with Tamar is Perez. He's actually a twin. But Judah has a son 
named Perez. Now we're back to Ruth. That's where Ruth's genealogy begins. So the alert reader will realize Perez is part of the kingly line, the line of Judah. Now let's talk about Tamar for a minute. You might jot down in your notes or write it in your margin. Tamar's story is in Genesis 38. I don't have time to tell you the whole story this morning. Plus, if I told you the whole story, I would feel like I needed to use some hand sanitizer. There's some things in there. I'm gonna do to y'all what I used to do to my kids. I would tell them, don't read that. Don't read that in the Bible. I knew they'd be up there in their room with a flashlight. Genesis 38, I bring her up because she has a lot in common with Ruth. She's a Gentile, she's a widow, and she needs the same kind of marriage, the marriage that keeps the family line alive. And so Tamar has a lot in common with Ruth. Don't read it, it's too intense. Judah's family line will produce kings. But what do we know about the time of Judges? Israel had no king, right? And so into this family comes Boaz. And through Boaz's kindness and him allowing God to just work in his life as he redeems Ruth and marries her, they're gonna continue the family line that's gonna lead ultimately to King David. Now, we've already talked about the significance of David, but there's one thing I left out. God also made a very important promise to him. So we had the Abrahamic promise or covenant to bless the whole world. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. We call it the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. He said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Here's the key. Your throne shall be established forever. God made a promise to David. Your offspring will always sit on the throne of Israel. And so like a lot of prophecies, there's an immediate fulfillment, Solomon. And Solomon sits on the throne and he's a good king and he expands the borders of Israel bigger than they've ever been. But the very next generation, his son, he fractures the kingdom into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And y'all, those kingdoms are never healed. They never come back together because the northern kingdom falls to Assyria in 720 BC. The southern kingdom falls to Judah in 586 BC. And for the next 500 years, God's people, Israel, are ruled by outsiders. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and finally, the Romans. So for 500 years, nobody is sitting on David's throne. So now imagine you live in that time, you live in that 500-year window when you're in exile. Or maybe you're back in the land, but you have a foreign government oppressing you, and you read 2 Samuel 7, and you see the promises of God, and you read Ruth, and you see how God worked out his plan to keep the family lineage alive to David, and you ask yourself, where's the next David? Where is the king God has promised us? Where is the answer to the promise to Abraham to bless the whole world? And it's into that world that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes his gospel. These are the very first words of the entire New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is where Matthew, writing to a largely Jewish audience, begins his story. 
He's saying, the king we've been waiting for has come. The Messiah who will bless the whole world is here. And his name is Jesus. And what Matthew's saying is, let me give you one strong piece of evidence that he's the one, his ancestry. And so he begins to trace his lineage. Look at these first few names. Abraham, we talked about him. Judah, we talked about him. It's the, the tribe of kings. And then Perez, and look, Matthew mentions Tamar because he wants to communicate. Tamar, a Gentile, a widow, an outsider, she's part of this story as he traces the lineage of Jesus. Skip down to verse five. That's where we're gonna see some familiar names for us in our Ruth study. There's Boaz. He says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Wait, stop. Think about that. Rahab. I know it's been a minute since we did our Joshua study in here. Remember Rahab? She was a Gentile, and she wasn't a widow. She was a prostitute. And she sheltered and hid the spies from Israel. And so they said, when this city falls, we're gonna save you. And so when Israel defeated Jericho, the only city ever knocked down by a trumpet, they saved Rahab. Salmon, more than likely, was probably one of those spies. Think about this. Rahab was Boaz's mom. The home he grew up in. His mom is a, Gentile, a Canaanite, an enemy. And we don't talk about what mom did before she and dad got married. You don't think when Boaz saw Ruth gleaning in that field, man, his heart broke in a million pieces? He saw his mom, an outsider on the margins, coming in and coming under the wing of the God of Israel. It really informs how we think about the story. And then we see there that, as we already know, Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. But if we read the rest of this genealogy all the way down, the genealogy that Matthew gives us, it's more than just an interesting ancestry. No, it's a big arrow pointing to the most significant birth in human history. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jesus who's called Christ. It means Messiah. The king you've been waiting for, Israel. The Messiah the world's been longing for. That promise made to Abraham 2,000 years before his birth. The promise made to David 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. They've all found their fulfillment, their ultimate fulfillment in their descendant, their son, the Messiah Jesus, and y'all, that's what makes the book of Ruth so significant. Now, all the things we've observed in the last three weeks, they're all true. This is a story of famine to harvest, and it is a story about God working in the small places, in the granular details of family life and work life. It is the story of God's hesed love, his covenant-keeping never-runs-out love. It is the story of a romance in the barley fields and at the threshing floor. And it is the story of a redeemer who would take a broken family and make it whole again. But ultimately, the book of Ruth is about God fulfilling his promise to bless the whole world. And when we look at Ruth, a Moabite, 
a widow. She's an outsider. She has no real hope for a future until she's redeemed by a baby born in Bethlehem. When we look at our own story, we're born outsiders outside the family of God. We have no real hope for an eternal future until we're redeemed by a baby born in Bethlehem. Of course, that baby would grow up to live the perfect life we could never live, would go to the cross and die the death that we deserved. And all of that happened because nobody, not Ruth, not Naomi, not you, and not me, nobody is beneath God's notice. Oh, if an outcast like Ruth or Rahab or Tamar can be used by God, can have a seat at his table, so can you and I. So we're gonna remember that this morning as a body through the act of communion. See, the book of Ruth has highlighted two big needs, food and family. And we have those same needs today. And Jesus brought those needs together when he said, come to my table, be part of my family, the firstborn among many brothers. And then he gave us bread and wine. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood. He said, I want you to use these simple elements to remember what it cost to redeem you. See, when Boaz redeemed Ruth, it was expensive, it cost him something. When God redeemed us, it cost him everything because it cost him the life of his son. And so in just a moment, our ushers are gonna pass those communion elements. Now, if you're here, you're just checking out church, you're checking out Christianity, you're not sure about all this, man, we're so glad you're here. We want you here. We would love to talk with you more about this. As those elements come, you can just pass them on to the person next to you. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to take those elements. And as you do, you're gonna see there's two cups. Take the top cup off, that's your juice, and the bottom is the bread, because y'all, no more prepackaged communion. Yeah. That may be the best news of the day. I want you to hold those elements. And as we worship together, look at that bread, look at that juice, think about what it costs to redeem you. As we worship the king who has come, who has redeemed us, and who's coming again. And in just a moment, we'll take the elements together.
on the third at break of dawn the son of heaven rose again oh trample death where is your sting the angels love for Christ the King oh praise the name of the
could find such boundless grace. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. We believe this. That the cross is spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Thank you. Jesus Christ, my living Hallelujah, sing it out. said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of him. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of many. Do this in remembrance of him. I'll celebrate this. Then came the morning.
thank him this morning for being our hope. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your hope. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and broke his body, spilled his blood that we may be washed clean, our redeemer, you're the same God you always have been. And so we put our hope in that this morning. Amen. This morning, if you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray with you, celebrate what's going on in your life or talk with you about things that are going hard in your life. To my left, to your right, we have our prayer room available to you. We love you, Fayette Fellowship Fable. God bless you. See you next week.